Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today. With all the discussion on race throughout most segments of society, a question that should be asked is, is it possible to be black and pro-life in America? Now, my question is lifted from a recent book with the same name, Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter Hoy. Some of my listeners may remember that last year I interviewed Walter on my podcast number 116 entitled How to Proceed When the Game Seems Rigged. If you haven't heard it, I recommend that you do so. But to summarize his story, Walter was arrested for violating a city of Oakland, California ordinance that was penned specifically to prevent him a black pastor, from standing peacefully outside an abortion clinic one morning a week with a sign which read, God loves you and your baby, let us help. My guest today is Lori Hoy, wife of Reverend Walter Hoy, who has played a vital role in their ministry work as they do it together under the banner Issues for Life Foundation. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Now, I've known you and Walter for about 10 years. Our commitment to the kingdom of God and the law of God have brought us together. You and Walter have made a point of working to get people of color, African-American and Hispanic, to really understand and see the assault on them by abortion. Talk a little bit about that, please. It's kind of obvious when you look at the numbers that the communities of color are the number one target, especially the black community. Um, At one point, when we first started, we got some numbers from Planned Parenthood, uh, Alan Guttmacher, the former researcher on Planned Parenthood, which showed that African-Americans were almost five times more likely than white women. Hispanic women were three point two times more likely. And the numbers actually showed that between the African-American community and the Latino community, that 88% of the abortions in America come from those communities of color. And I doubt that that has changed other than the manipulation of the numbers to try and downplay the impact in those communities of color. And African-Americans have gone from being the primary, the dominant minority in the United States to the second largest minority in the United States. And that's over a period of, you know, Roe v. Wade has been legal almost 50 years. Abortion has been legal longer than that. It became legal in California, Colorado, and Mississippi in 1967. And the target is, has been, and always will be communities of color because Margaret Sanger, who was a eugenicist and a racist, targeted minorities as people she thought were undesirable. And also she called us human weeds. And until we wake up to the fact that our community is being decimated 
to the point where we are no longer replacing ourselves and black America is on the verge of disappearing, basically reaching irreversibility. So one of the things that I think a lot of people find odd is that when people of color, as we'll, you know, consider this demographic, are usually interested in the rights of individuals. Why do you suppose it is, unless it's just a superb marketing job, that you see so many Black leaders in favor of maintaining a woman's right to kill her child? Well, a lot of it goes back to the marketing of Margaret Sanger and the abortion industry. I mean, in the 1930s, Margaret Sanger had a Negro project where she actually paid ministers to promote and propagate her plan, parenthood, birth control mindset, trying to get you to believe that if you have fewer children, your money will go further, you'll be able to prosper more in society when that is the antithesis of what God tells us to be fruitful and multiply. And because the compromise goes back almost 100 years, you now have generations of people who have been taught that birth control is the way to go and abortion is, you know, basically a form of birth control. And if you choose that, you're not really doing anything bad. You're actually trying to help yourself so that you can maintain a certain lifestyle or achieve a certain goal when in actuality you are destroying yourself and your people. Now, the book I referenced at the beginning goes into not only Walter's background, but your background as well. And in the book, it mentioned Mm -hmm. how he came to terms with the idea that abortion was actually the taking of a human life when his own son was born very prematurely. And he was actually able to hold his son in his hand. And he realized that's who was being killed in abortion. What's your motivation or what has been the personal connection to you and this this mission to get people to see what abortion actually is? Well, for me, it, it is personal. I am a child that was conceived in rape. My mother was a victim of date rape. And my mother turned 17, 44 days before I was born. So she was the youngest of five kids. And believe it or not, her family kind of split in half. Um, her sister-in-law and her two older sisters actually offered her drugs to abort me. And if you're talking 1959, my grandmother, my mother's closest sister told her that, you know, they would help her. They could support her if she, you know, wanted to keep the baby. Don't do this. And, you know, God kind of, you know, made the difference. You know, it was three and three and God weighed in and here I am. But the the point for me is that my mother, while she was a, a single mom at 17, what she was able to do after that was even more phenomenal. My mother graduated nine months later, nine months after I was born, class valedictorian. She graduated top of her class. She actually participated in um, NIC, you know, the counter protests in uh, the 1960s. And for me, you know, me actually being here is my motivation for the life issue. 
I look at all the things that have happened in my family because I exist. My mom's favorite things we would do on Saturdays was after she got paid, we would go to Woolworths and sit at the counter and have lunch. And that was just what we did. I was, you know, I was five years old and I did not recognize the significance of that until 2010 when I was in Tennessee and they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the students who sat in at the lunch counters at Woolworths. And so you're looking at a fi in a five-year period, we go from not being able to sit at the counter to me sitting at the counter every Saturday in the same store. My people need to recognize that life is a gift and the things that came forward because I'm here, because I exist in my family. I mean, there's members of my family who would not exist if I wasn't here. And so you can't take on this issue and think, well, you just got rid of the one baby. You killed generations because yes. you have no idea the impact that God has or what he has in store for this one child to impact, you know, the rest of the folk in your family. And it puts a face on the baby you can't see while a woman is pregnant. In the book, it talks about how um, as a child, you were so good mm -hmm. in math and in sports, but specifically academically, when you were in second grade, they wanted to yeah. promote you to fifth grade because the work was too easy for you. And so we'd yeah. like to think that we got rid of the people who wouldn't amount mm -hmm. to much, but uh, knowing right. you and, and knowing the work that you do and, and the support you give your husband tells me that uh, anything we can do to help women see that this is not a solution is worth it. Oh yeah. It's not a solution. Um, one January, you know, sanctity of life month, there was a woman on KFAX and I can't remember her name. And one of the things that she points out is that tells young women who are considering abortion, she says, you do not want to spend the rest of your life dragging a cemetery behind you. Because when you abort the baby, you may have ended that life, but you carry that with you forever. You, know, you can't escape that you took someone's life and not just someone, your own child. And you took your child's life for a myriad, you know, the convenience reasons. You wanted to continue your education. You wanted to get a job, move. You wanted to get out of a relationship. But you got to start thinking that your life is worth more. And if you do it God's way, if you get an education, if you get a job, if you get married before you have children, then you won't have to go down that dark path of ending someone's life because of your mistakes. Right. One of the things that you and Walter advocate, and I've heard you, um, I've heard him speak publicly, and usually mm. we're at an event and you and I get a chance to talk. You shared with me something that I had only known peripherally. You said we were talking about how there are a lot of people within the black community who are not particularly interested in getting an injection that's supposed to make them safer or healthier. And you brought up because they remember the Tuskegee experiment. And to be honest with you, Lori, I knew about it, but I didn't know about it the way I should know about it. And I investigated it 
mm-hmm. took a dive in there. Tell my listeners why that's significant in terms of things that are happening today, not just with vaccinations, but specifically with abortion in the black community. Well, the Tuskegee experiment, the United States government deliberately infected over 300 men with syphilis. And they left these men with this disease, knowing that a cure was available for over 40 years. So they could pass it on to their children. Their children could have to deal with it. And these men were basically experimented on and allowed to die some horribly and to continue to spread just because America wanted to experiment. And it took somebody 40 years later to go, oh, wait, we didn't stop that? You know, to come back and say, oh, wow, you know, this should be over. And abortion is the same way. Abortion is the decimation of the Black community and life. Abortion actually violates the Nuremberg Code because abortion has never been tested on animals. And the Nuremberg Code says you can't do anything to human beings that you haven't tested on animals. And so just, you know, lay this experiment on the black community predominantly because you want to eliminate life. I mean, it's a it's a pattern, unfortunately, that the government has that they experiment on people eliminating lives because they deem these people not worthy of life. And then they kind of just sweep it under the rug and say, oh, no, it's okay." And it's the same thing. The vaccines are tainted with fetal tissue. They're developed in a way that destroys your, uh, I mean, in some cases, blood vessels. I mean, you've got people in their 20s becoming, you know, having myocarditis, you know, heart conditions. Uh, we actually know one young man who received a jab. He was 27 years old, healthy, dropped dead. I mean, they're celebrities. You know, Hank Aaron died 17 days after receiving the injection. Marvin Hagler died of a heart attack after getting the first shot. And when you look at the target is your reproductive organs and the things that these vaccines actually do to black men in particular, black people in general, you have to constantly say, hey, wait a minute, I've seen this before. This is what happened, you know, 50 years ago, and we're not falling for it. And because they just dismiss natural immunity. They dismiss herd immunity. It's like they're doing things unnecessarily. You have a vaccine for a virus that has a 99.7% recovery rate. I mean, the flu is worse, but we have gone overboard with this vaccine because you've got the fear factor that you can attach to it. And that moves people in ways that they wouldn't normally move because they're afraid they're not actually thinking and it's um it's a disaster do you think the placement of abortion clinics and the targeting of black women is a racist thing if we're talking about racism oh yeah oh, almost 80 percent of planned parenthood the abortion industry surgical abortion clinics are within walking distance of minority neighborhoods. That's not an accident. You know, in Alameda County, they had five abortion clinics. We, the one on Webster closed, but of the five abortion clinics, four 
were in black neighborhoods. Four were actually in the city of Oakland. So you can't, that's not an accident. I mean, Mark Crutcher actually did a study that showed that the abortion industry places their clinics based on zip code, based on the race, racial mix-up in those zip codes. And the higher the black population, the more likely there's an abortion clinic there. It is deliberate targeting. It is racist. And the fact that we can't see, you know, that there's an abortion clinic, you know, on all these corners in black neighborhoods. And yet you go to Blackhawk, there isn't one. You go to, you know, Piedmont, there isn't one. But you go to Oakland and you can find four. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the event that made Walter famous. He only showed (laughs) up at this clinic one day out of a week. And he did it for a couple of hours. And mm-hmm. he's not the first who would stand there and do it. Why do you think it was significant that they came after a man who was there with a presence outside the clinic? And on top of that, a black man. And on top of that, a minister. Oh, wow. Because the abortion industry has spent an inordinate amount of time using black ministers to convince black people that abortion is okay. And that clinic had, like you said, they had sidewalk counselors out there for over 20 years, but they were Caucasian and they were Catholic and the women could just easily walk by them and basically say, you know, they're racist because the women are black and the the people trying to reach them are white. But to have a black man on the sidewalk, a minister is like their biggest fear because that's the person that they have been using to try and convince black people that abortion is okay. And for a black minister to say, no, this is wrong. This is against the word of God. There are alternatives. We can help you. You don't need to go in this place and kill your child and ruin your life. You can, you know, have a life affirming choice and here, let me tell you about it. And the abortion industry, they don't want black ministers saying anything. They want them to be silent because, like I said, they've used black ministers for years to convince you abortion is okay. And when the black minister turns around and says abortion isn't, they don't have any place to go because that's been their spokesperson. You know, well, you told me to believe the preacher and now the preacher is saying this is wrong. So why do you want me to not believe him when he says it's wrong, but believe him when he says it's right? It creates a big problem for them. He wasn't there every single day for eight hours. I think per my recollection, Mm -hmm. he was there Tuesday mornings Mm -hmm. because he had other responsibilities at his church and he was there for two hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was there one day a week for two hours. And what we found out when we went to court is that that one day was like their biggest killing day. You know, they did more abortions on Tuesday than any other days of the week that they actually did abortion. So, and that was just God because he had a Bible study that he taught on Tuesday to seniors. And so he only had this window, you know, from eight to 10 because he had to get back to church to do Bible study with the seniors at lunchtime. And one day there were actually, and it happened to be videotaping and I was counting, there were actually 27 women who came to this abortion clinic in that two hour window. And there was literally a line in the street. And these women came because they heard that there was a black minister on the sidewalk 
and he was helping women. Now, the clinic could not do 27 abortions in a two-hour window, but they took the appointments because they would just get the women in there and just stack them. That's their mindset. But these women stood in line and talked to Walter and got whatever help, assistance, direction that they needed. But the fact that they were willing to come and stand in the street in front of a clinic and wait for help tells you how great the need is for help. But it also told the abortion industry that he was having an impact beyond what they could imagine, and they had to put a stop to it. Now, the book goes into detail about the case, about the uh, the formation of this ordinance and how there were just outright lies accusing Walter of aggressively pushing against clinic workers. And for those of you who don't know oh, yeah. Walter... I, I don't think I've ever seen Walter do anything aggressive. You know, I, I don't know what he's like no, when he stubs no. his toe, Lori, but <laughs> he seems pretty even killed to me. He is pretty even killed all the time. At the hearings for this ordinance, one of the most embarrassing moments for the city council was when Walter and Sister Kendall, who was, I think, 89 at the time, and Sister uh, Christiana, who was 84 at the time, when the three of them walked up to the podium and said, we're the public safety risk. <laughs> the room just got silent. It's like, okay, you have one man and two senior women, and we need an ordinance against these people? You know, got to be kidding. So not only were the the cards stacked against this effort of Walters. But there's a part in the book where it talks about when you addressed the city council. And I have to tell you, it's not that I don't appreciate Walters' words. I do. But the part of the book where you spoke to the clinic workers and the people who were opposing this, would you share what your comments were? <laughs> it's like we went there a couple of times, but... um I mean, I know at one point when we were coming to the the end, I guess, of just fighting this ordinance. And I said, you know, one of the reasons that we're here is because and there was there was one city councilwoman who stood up and said she had an abortion and she's not sorry and she didn't want anybody praying for her. And she said that after I said that, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, you know, we weren't there when you needed help. We weren't there to reach you. We weren't there to offer you alternatives. I mean, you're punishing sidewalk counselors now because you have a history of being hurt and there was no one there to say, hey, there's another alternative. And so you can't retroactively, you know, lash out at somebody for something that didn't happen for you and something you want to, so you don't want anybody else to have that opportunity. It's like, they didn't help me. They can't help anybody else. And so I want to make sure these people get off the sidewalk. But I just really said, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry that you're hurt. I'm sorry that we weren't there. I mean, there's still help available for you now, but you have got to, you know, this is not the way to rectify the situation, you know, punish everybody because you didn't get something. And I imagine... And, um, that hit deeply because I know that a lot of people end up volunteering at abortion clinics as the people who will escort people in. And I've known a lot of people who've done so mm -hmm. partly because oh, yeah. 
they have this guilt that doesn't go away, but they think, well, you know what? These other nice people are coming to do this. So there's somehow safety in numbers. And so I imagine when you apologized for you and others not being there, it must have uh, been quite a blow. Oh, yeah, they were very, like I said, the city councilwoman stood up, you know, and just screamed, you know, she had an abortion. It was the best thing that ever happened to her. And she doesn't want anybody praying for her. That was her response to my apology. <laughs> so it, it definitely struck a nerve. And there were, like you said, there are people that are out there on the sidewalk. You know, they say misery loves company. They're out there on the sidewalk helping people go into the abortion clinic because they think they're helping them. And they're also, like you say, it, it keeps them from having to actually deal with their own guilt because if someone else is doing it and I did it, then it must be okay, right? So what I did can't be that wrong because she's doing it, she's doing it. You know, people are still going in here. So I'm okay. But in actuality, it just almost amplifies the pain because they know what's going to happen to that woman when she goes in the clinic. They know what they're experiencing. They know that they're walking wounded and they don't know how to get help or where to get help. Or some of them don't want help like the city councilwoman. And it's painful. And whenever you, you know, reach out to the sidewalk counselors, like we've dealt with people at different events, the people that come up to you screaming and angry and just, you know, enraged, those are the people that you look at them and you say, I'm sorry for your loss. I had a friend once who it mm-hmm. was a long time into our relationship that she admitted to me that she had an abortion. Mm-hmm. And um, it's always funny when Christian women feel like mm-hmm. if they tell you that, that somehow or other, you're not going to be their friend anymore. But she maintained yeah. that she could show up at a church and she could mm-hmm. look and she could point out who the women mm-hmm. were who had had abortions and who were still suffering from it. And she said, I mean, she ended up becoming the head of a pregnancy center where she was, but she said that she was almost uniformly correct that she could spot them because she remembered what she looked like and how she felt. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, we actually had an event at our church where we had the, they call them post-abortion counseling and education counselors come in on a Sunday morning, and we actually did kind of like an anonymous, you know, these women shared their testimony of regretting their abortions, and we did like anonymous questions. You know, you can ask a question, but you can't put your name down. You can't, you know, if there's any, you know, recognizable, you know, markings on it, we're throwing it away because we want you to actually ask questions and get help. And it turned out that there was one woman in our congregation who you would think that you got married and you had a baby and life would be, you know, just going great. And it did just the opposite. I mean, her life fell apart after she gave birth to her son. And the underlying problem was that 20 years earlier, she had had an abortion and never told anyone. And that pain, that agony, you know, every time she looked at her son, it brought back, you know, the children she lost. And she was really having a hard time dealing with that. And we actually were able to approach 
the abortion, post-abortion recovery in a different way. Because like your friend said, when you come to church and you see these people, they're the walking wounded, but nobody is going to come to church and say, I mean, you've got professionals who, who do the post-abortion healing to say, we've, you know, regret our abortions, but very few people in the congregation are going to put that bullseye on their back and say, I've had an abortion, you know, I've disobeyed God and, you know, I want you to, you know, know who I am. And we actually did kind of like an undercover thing where we did basically abortion recovery, but under the cover of grief and loss. And we did a, um, a 12 week session on grief and loss and dealing with, you know, any kind of grief, any kind of loss, you know, someone died, you may have had a miscarriage, you know, your parents, you changed jobs. But under that umbrella, we were able to allow women to come in and receive the healing for their abortions and their miscarriages. Because the counselor in the grief class was also equipped to do post-abortion counseling. And we actually identified seven women in our church. Only one of them had had a miscarriage. The other six were post-abortive and were able to get them through the healing process. But you have to be strategic because especially in the black church, they're, they're not going to talk about that. So let's go back to this ordinance thing. Despite video evidence to the contrary, Walter was found guilty and he was sentenced Mm -hmm. to the county jail. The book goes into detail about what it was like for him, but I know that it's got to be just as difficult being the spouse, the person on the outside, where it's not easy to get information about your husband. Talk a little bit about what it was like for you during that time. Well, it was interesting when he was first sent to jail and the lawyers gave me the phone number, but, and I called and they said, he's not here. (laughs) I was like, what do you mean? He's not here. You people took him away hours ago. You've lost him between, you know, Oakland and Santa Rita. It's like, I don't know. So then they finally said, oh, he's new. Okay. He hadn't even been processed. It was like three o'clock in the morning. And then they finally came back and said, okay, he's going to be in whatever unit 34. And if you want to visit, you need to come out now and get on the list. I'm like, it's dark, three o'clock in the morning. So I have no idea what I'm doing. I just shower, get dressed, go to Santa Rita, and I'm in this line. There's like this walk-up bridge to the building, and there are these people are already in line, and they got blankets and soccer chairs, and, and I have no idea what I'm doing, but I get in the line. And then when daylight comes, you know, a sheriff comes out and with a clipboard and puts people's names on this list, right? And you tell them who you want to visit and they put your name down. And then you had to come back like hours later for the visitation. So that process was really, you know, confusing. But I, after my first, you know, middle of the night on Saturday trek to Santa Rita, I got, you know, okay, this is what you have to do. And then once you get your name on the list, it's like only one person has to show up in the dark and get their name on the list. And then when you come back to visit, you can bring, I think it's either three or four people, three or four people can come with you to visit the person. 
but at least one name has to already be on the list. And then you fill out this form and you get a badge and, and you have to leave everything in your life in a locker that <laughs> you put a quarter in. And so you, the only thing you can bring with you is the key. You can't bring your phone. You can't bring, you know, I guess you could bring a pencil. I never even thought about that. But so you're just sitting there in this room waiting for them to call off whoever is, you know, up for visitation next. And it's like a three hour window for visitation. And there's like six seats on each side and go left or right. And then they open this, this door slides back and they call out the name of the person. And then you go in this room and you got to look behind this glass to see, Oh, okay, there's Walter, you know, you can go down. But the visitation thing was terrible because the phone cords were too short for you to actually pick up the phone and sit down. So you either had to stand up and use the phone or, you know, strain or, or sit on the edge of the window to actually talk to the person through the glass. But it was, it was seriously depressing. And some of the people that were there to visit were kind of an issue as well. So one of the funniest parts of the book to me was when Walter recounts what it was like to be processed in. And now he's in this general area with other men and they want to know what it is he did. And he said, I held a sign that said, God loves you and your baby. Let us help. And they didn't believe him. They thought, sure, that he must have been a Uh -uh. drug dealer or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was hilarious. They were, yeah. No, man, you must have, you brought drugs, right? You must have did this. Oh, no, you probably killed somebody. I mean, well, he wouldn't be on the side he was on if he had killed somebody, but they just knew he was just clowning them. He did something crazy. And it wasn't until the newspaper showed up that they're like, hey, is this you? You know, because it was a big article (laughs) in the Oakland paper, you know, minister, you know, in prison for, you know, whatever. They're like, then they were like, okay, you know, it did sound dumb, you know, being put in jail for a sign when these guys were in jail for much worse things. (laughs) According to the the story, as it goes, he was able to be the minister, the chaplain unofficially of the men in his unit. And, you know, as, as so many things, people mean it for evil, but God meant it for good. Oh, yeah. And it was amazing, the stuff that happened, you know, in his unit, the man that he led to Christ. He was talking about all the junk food he was buying for them, which is another crime, because if you want to buy food for somebody, and I tried to, like, he was fasting for 40 days for life. And so I tried to get on and see, okay, well, how can I get Walter extra juice or, and you couldn't. I mean, you could buy sodas, you could buy chips, but it was just awful. They were, are not trying to, you know, keep people healthy, but the way he was able to outreach and minister to men with the junk food and tortillas and all kind of other stuff, you know, God used that to lead men to Christ. And he also enabled me being on the outside. And uh, one woman I was talking to was talking about her son. He was Caucasian. And she said, he sees these men studying, you know, having a Bible study and he's a baby Christian and he'd like to get in, but in jail, you know, there's serious segregation, you know, racially, you know, 
it doesn't mix. And so I told Walter, and then Walter knew who he was. He had seen the guy. And he said, okay. So he reached out to him and, and actually pulled him into the Bible study. So you got one white guy with a whole bunch of black guys doing Bible study at midnight. It was uh, pretty crazy. Yeah. Like I said, I recommend people get the book because it's very informative. But an interesting aspect of this whole saga is that Walter's mm-hmm. church at the time didn't really stand behind him. And he lost his pulpit and the support. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, if you wanted to see envy, I guess, at work, they were really petrified. You're in a, a black neighborhood and abortion is the number one cause of death in the black community. And your church is now known for a minister who's trying to prevent his people from being killed. And everybody wanted to talk to Walter. You know, I mean, TV interviews, you have folk coming from across the country D. James Kennedy, Coral Ridge Ministries, flew in a camera crew to um, interview him in jail. And it was kind of like they got put on the map. Even though this church had a daycare center, I mean, this church was the only Black church that was supporting a pregnancy resource center. I mean, it's kind of like you kind of don't know what happened. It's like, wait a minute, we were doing all this pro-life stuff. And now that it's really, you know, but I guess the key was they were doing all this pro-life stuff kind of like undercover. You know, we, we sent a check, we had a table at the banquet, but we didn't really have a sign that said we're pro-life. And now you have Walter who is big, a sign that says this church is pro-life. And for some reason, you know, they didn't want the attention. And it's probably the backlash of in the black community being, you know, a woman's right to choose, but it was pretty cowardly how they responded and their complete lack of support. It was just a shame considering all the things that they had been teaching and doing, but yet when it came down to the rubber meet the road and they had to actually live it every day, they weren't willing to do that. And so Issues for Life Foundation um, and you, if people are interested, the four in issues for life is the number four. Right. You and Walter and I, I listened to a discussion on this recently, have made a modern version of the Underground Railroad. Talk a little bit about that. That was pretty amazing. We were able to, we, we reach out to pastors all the time, black leaders. But just like the Underground Railroad with Harriet Tubman, you know, the number one criteria for you to go with her was that you wanted to be free. And you had to convince her that you wanted to be free. And what we do with the Underground Railroad is that we actually work with pastors who are pro-life, who want to be pro-life. But in the Black community, you have to learn how to be pro-life and not get fired like Walter. So you, there's a way to be pro-life. There is a way to get the message out there, to preach it and teach it. And what we do is we gather pastors and their wives, and we keep it to about seven so that we can keep the group small so that you can have those intimate conversations. Because And one of the reasons for pastors and their wives, because in our experience, you know, if you only have one or the other, then you may convince the pastor and then his wife will talk him out of it. 
and that because she may have a history of abortion in her life. So you get the two of them together and we pour information into them. We actually introduce them to former black abortionists. We introduce them to the leading OBGYN, black OBGYN in the country, civil rights leaders, post-abortion recovery. I mean, we have for four days, we pour into them so that they really understand the abortion issue, the background. We show Ma'afa 21, which is the premier documentary. If you want to know why abortion exists, you need to see Ma'afa, M-A-A-F-A-21.com. You can actually see it online because abortion exists because Black people exist. But we pour into the pastors, we equip them to go back to their church and actually implement pro-life programs in a way that allows their congregation to be introduced to it, to be brought along. You can introduce healing. You can start with a recovery group. You can start with a, a young women's group. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can start being pro-life in the, in the Black community. And those little ways allow you to build up to the fact, to the point where the one pastor we had who said, he went back to his church that Sunday and said, hey, I'm a pro-life pastor. And from now on, we're a pro-life church. And here's what we're going to be doing. And so that ministry, that underground railroad, like I said, allows us to pour into leaders and equip them to leave us and go back to their community and be more effective in implementing pro-life strategies and yet being able to keep their job and to also keep their influence in the community. Very good. Also, your emphasis is on building strong families and encouraging oh, yeah. Black men not to produce children and then not be there for them. Talk a little exactly. bit about that aspect of your ministry. Well, the Black families used to be you know, foundationally strong. In the 60s, 70% of Black families were intact. Mom and dad, children, all all the children had the same mom and dad. That's when Black America was at her strongest. And today it's flipped on its head. We got 75% of Black children are born to a single parent. And what we have to, what we have emphasized and what we teach is we show young men, young women, you know, here's the danger, right? Here's what happens if you don't do it God's way. And, you know, we try to be an example, you know, we're married, you know, male, female, and we actually have an initiative where we have a young couple, they have 11 kids, <laughs> I forget, 11, 10, 11 kids, but they are, you know, demonstrating that, you know, if you get married, you know, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, there's never a better time to do what God tells you to do than right now. And so if you, you know, keep yourself pure, wait for the man, the woman that God has for you, not just run out and marry anybody, but wait for that person, build that relationship, grow yourself up, educate yourself, get married, then have children, and you know God will bless you, and you know, nothing better than that. Absolutely. So again, I'm going to say issuesforlife.org, correct? Correct. And okay. it's the number four. 
Yeah. Number four. So before we go, because we're getting to the end of our time, you and Walter, as you go around the country and speak at pro-life events and are part of Walks for Life, that's not the only thing that you both do. You have connections with the NBA. What are those connections? Well, I was the chief statistician for the um, Golden State Warriors, spent 33 years working in the NBA. I have the distinction of being the first and the only African-American female to hold the position that I hold. And Walter is one of the two chaplains for the Warriors. So they have a chapel service before every game. Every team has at least one chaplain. And, you know, they have a Bible study and a Bible lesson and a prayer and um, all the Christian players can plug in with the chaplains. And so it's been a pretty good ride. I also work in the NFL as a statistician. There's Um, that math prowess that you had and demonstrated. That is, that is, I know it's, it's a curse almost, you know, (laughs) the math prowess, but the reason that the door was open for us, though, to the NBA and the NFL is that Walter's dad, when you're talking about Black in America, in 1968, his dad broke the color line in the NFL. He was the first African-American to work for an NFL team in their front office. You had players, but you didn't have any public relations directors or any you know, of the personnel in the front office that were African-American. So his dad went to work for the San Diego Chargers in 68, Buddy Young, who went to work for NFL in their headquarters in New York, they were the only two that were in, you know, managerial positions for the um, NFL. And that broke, you know, the color line that opened the door for me to get into statistics. And, you know, subsequently, you know, here we are. You know, the saying goes that behind every great man is a great woman. I think a more accurate saying should be that alongside every great man is a great woman, as per God's institution of marriage, that a husband and wife together work as partners in the work of being fruitful, multiplying and replenishing the earth. Do you ever feel like a second fiddle in this effort or how how do you find how you fit in to the work and the, the mission of your husband? We are partners in this work. And it's interesting how God uses us collectively and and individually. You know, there are, we have strengths, we have weaknesses. Like I tell everybody, Walter's the nice person. You know, Walter's very calm, very easygoing. (laughs) And for me, you know, I'm pretty matter of fact. And you can see that in any videos that you see me in, you know, I'm just going to tell it to your face, you know. And You may not like it. You may not want to hear it, but I have my facts. You know, it's logical. You know, it's reasoned out. And, you know, I just say, I just say it like it is. You know, he's more, I tell him he's the son of a PR director. You know, he's more diplomatic, you know, more easygoing. You know, he, he kind of eases you into stuff. And uh, for me, it's just like, hey, either you get it or you don't. And a lot of people don't. And, you know, I don't mind debating and arguing. You know, I'm okay with that just about doing what we do and you know our gifts <laughs> mesh pretty well. Yes, they do. They do. And he's the first to say that uh any success he has is by the gift that God gave him of you. 
least he says that publicly. Well, you know, (laughs) one thing I should should say (laughs) is that both Walter and Lori have their signature hats that say, got Jesus. And I don't think I've ever seen Walter talk without his sunglasses at the bottom of his nose. And um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it disarms people from saying this guy's a threat, which then makes me laugh that the folks in Oakland considered him a, were trying to play him as a physical threat. Oh yeah. It was the Oakland thing was such a joke. I mean, they had to go back to the 1970s and find some fake photos of some abortion clinic bombing attack you know, the pe- people in the picture are, are not even, you know, alive today. And that was pointed out as well. It's like, you guys are just making this up. And like I said, when Walter, Sister Kendall and Sister Christiana walked up to the to the podium and said, we are the public safety threat, you know, you could have heard a pin drop because there's no way that he's aggressive, dangerous, you know, dragging women away from the door. That's not what happened. Yeah, well, I would say he is dangerous on a spiritual level. He's extremely dangerous. True. And uh, I I really applaud Mm -hmm. the fact that you guys are willing and have been willing to stand alone when you have to and then make alliances with people who share your passion. So as I mentioned earlier, your focus happens to be within the Black community, but I think your primary focus, at least what has always come through to me, is your love and allegiance to Jesus Christ, and you are helping those who need to be helped. And so that's why Lori and Walter are always among my favorite people. Well, I thank you for that. And you're right. You know, our number one allegiance is Jesus, and we help Jesus, his people, Christians, you know. However, we can. We interface, like you said, our primary focus is the Black community, but we have done events for our Asian Christian friends and Latino, and you know, we interface with the Catholic Church a great deal um, because it's about Jesus and it's about saving lives and honoring God and protecting those created in His image. Amen to that. Well, thanks, Lori. I appreciate you taking the time because you guys are all over the country. So I caught you in my time zone, which made it easier. Yes. So again, I'm going to say issuesforlife.org. And listeners, if you would like to comment on this podcast or at any time uh, have questions or make suggestions for future guests, please feel free to email me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.